Whole Foods, the most expensive place ever. Wait a minute. They they had the jokes about uh, Stephen Colbert had some great jokes on that. Wait, where wait. they had like asparagus water for five dollars. It was a bottle of water with like four asparagus stalks in it. Uh, yep. Cash, cash, hold on, hold on, because my mind just got blown. Uh oh. <laughs> yes, Canada Post president and CD- CEO is Deepak Chopra. Huh? Really? No, can't be. Really? Is it? Canada Post President and CEO Deepak Chopra. Can't be the same one. How many Deepak Chopras are there? (laughs) No. Do a quick search. This can't be. I mean, Deepak is a common last name. That's first name. I'm sorry. Common first name. (sighs) Where's my Google? Yes. He is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Canada Post Corporation. And also a leading doctor? Um, well, if you look at his picture and look at the picture of the other Deepak Chopra, they do not look like the same guy. Okay. That makes more so sense. So it's a different one. Because... Yeah, was... they look nothing alike. Okay, well, good. There's there's two of them. Yeah, so we can have fun whenever somebody brings up a health issue and we'll go, we'll talk to Deepak Chopra. President and CEO of the Canadian Post Office. You have a health issue. We'll see if we can put it on a stamp. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's French. It's not tablet. It's table. <laughs> it sounded like you were ill for a Gamay table. Gamay table. Gamay table. My name is Gamay table. It goes with your dupe sock. Gamay. G A M E. Oh, is it the Chosis Tube? Tube. <laughs> what was the, is that the one from the last night? The sock. Yeah. <laughs> Say Tube. The Chosis Tube. Chosis Tube. It's like Tube. Yeah, we haven't had uh, any co-inventors of the Tube Sock in a while. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah. Maybe we've named them all. No, I think there's more. You think so? Yeah, there's lots, lots. You're just hanging. Give it a countdown. Let's get it. Get this uh, dog and pony show off to the glue factory. And I've door. Got I've got it. He's going to keep the door open anyway. You're keeping the door open? Sure. Well, I guess there's nobody no. out there, is there? No. Well, we'll just stop everything when the phone rings. Oh, okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Stanley Pillar. I'm a professional stamp dealer, and I have been one for over 50 years. I'm also vice president of the ASDA. I welcome you all to Stamp Show here today. Enjoy. Look at them, madam. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. What are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Oh, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yeah, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Oh, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. Why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. 
from Spain and two from Japan. I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan. I got a plenty from Poland, but none from Sudan or from Fiji or Uzbekistan. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. Welcome to Stamp Show here today, episode 111. I'm Cash, and did you know that oxymoron is an oxymoron, as oxy means sharp and moron means stupid? I'm Scott, and when Kaz writes me a funny joke, I'll read it. <laughs> Ooh, this is Tom, and Scott stole my line. <laughs> Originality, please. Originality. Aww. And I'm your host, Dawn. This week, we will be discussing murder most foul. We will also be discussing stamps made out of fish and a most brutal war between Iceland and Britain over these fish stamps. No, that's not right. Iceland and Britain didn't fight over fish stamps. What did they fight over? They fought over fish. Maybe they wanted the fish to make stamps out of We will also be discussing fancy cancels on this date in history. Last month, on December 23rd, 1936, 81 years ago, a very rare and priceless Chinese postage stamp was stolen, and its thief claimed two victims in a hotel, both of whom were found murdered in a locked room with no way in. Well, then how did they get in there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What room has no windows and what no doors? The mushroom. (laughs) (laughs) On this date in history, two days before Christmas, a week before Valentine's Day? I said last month. Or two. Anyway. Oh, it is two. Is it where? Oh. Anyway, what were the specifics of this most heinous crime? Most heinous crime? Hyenas? Hyenas. Well, if it involved mushrooms, that's pretty heinous. Ellery Queen romances the stamp's beautiful owner, Josephine Temple, while working with his father, Inspector Queen, to solve this baffling case and, re- and return this very rare stamp to its owner. Okay, you got us, but it was very campy and entertaining. We watched this movie with friends of the show, Stan and Katrina Iceland. Hi, Stan. Hi, Stan. Hi, Katrina. And what was the name of the movie, Cash? Uh, the ma- name of the movie, you can see it on YouTube. It's also on a bunch of other channels. It's called Ellery Queen, The Mandarin Mystery from 1936. And it is a very interesting uh, movie to watch as a stamp collector. The way they hold the stamp. You know, this stamp is the most valuable stamp in the world. And they're like picking it up with their fingers. And it's stuck to a little piece of paper. But it is from China, and we all know Chinese stamps are valuable. So it's a hokey movie that any stamp collector will enjoy. So uh, I'm passing that along. Well, we had a double feature that night. Oh, yes, we did, actually. Mm-hmm. We saw that and Charade, mm-hmm. which also involves stamps. Charade and the Mandarin Mystery. And by the way, uh, supposedly there's two Mandarin Mysteries. This is the one from 1936. So I think they... I didn't see the other one, but they had to have done a better job. <laughs> had to have? Had, had to have. Oh, just had to. I mean, the, the campiness, it's like watching uh, old Batman with Adam West versus new Batman with whoever the Batman guy is. Dark Knight. 
Well, there's been a few of them, so you'd be right not to name one guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Engineer Tom, what have you got for us? Well, I thought we were doing a little too much of uh, old-time stuff, even even if now it's... I didn't even realize the old-time stuff today was fake old-time stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk about a few more current things going on in stamps in the stamp world um, every now and again. And the first one I kind of picked up on recently was the Philatelic Summit 2017, which is actually going to be held April 7th through 9th in Stockholm at the Stockholm Waterfront Congress Center. And it's a seminar for collectors, exhibitors, jurors, and expertizers. It's going to have several talks and workshops sharing knowledge of uh, selection of stamps, covers, and cancellations with respect to their philatelic importance. And it's going to be under the guidance of experienced philatelists. I didn't write down all of their names, but it's several different folks throughout the world. Several of which are co-inventors of the tube sock. I am sure. Under the leadership of Jonas Hallstrom, the philatelic summits have evolved in recent years into a very popular series of events. And they have a particular focus for all philatelists. The upcoming summit focuses on a selection of philatelic items for both exhibitors, exhibits, and collections. There's going to be 10 lectures held by internationally experienced philatelists. There's going to be 10 lectures by internationally experienced philatelists, judges, exhibitors, experts, and professionals. Oh, sorry. Scripting ain't that easy, is it? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. 10 lectures by internationally experienced philatelists, judges, exhibitors, and experts will be the basis of the seminar. Additional workshops for participants are going to provide for the first time an opportunity to explore and develop specialist disciplines including traditional postal history, postal stationery, thematic, and open philately in group settings. And the original deadline for this was January 2017, but I did see that there are some spaces still available, which is why I'm kind of putting it out there for anyone who may want to uh, travel to Stockholm. And uh, the only requirement is knowledge of English, as the entire seminar will be conducted in English. Well, we have a worldwide audience, so uh, if anybody does go there who's listening to the podcast... Uh, drop me an email at bluepaper at gradingmatters.com. We'd love to find out how and what's going how on. How it with went. This. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. Yeah. Also, some modern stamp stuff coming out recently. February is Black History Month, and Canada has issued a stamp of Matthew DaCosta, a 17th century interpreter who is thought to be the first person of African descent to arrive in Canada. And he's going to be featured on this month's Black History stamp from the Canada Post. Uh, it's a self-adhesive stamp, which are being sold in booklets of 10, and they were formally issued February 1st at the start of Black History Month. And the official first day covers were canceled in Tadoussac, Quebec. I have no idea if I pronounced that right because I don't speak French. Oh, I'm pretty sure you probably didn't. Uh, and that is where they believe DaCosta may have come ashore. The Canada Post president and CEO Deepak Chopra said, While the full story of Matthew DaCosta may never be known, interest in his life and his unique connection with our country is a reminder of the values of respect, acceptance, and diversity that Canadians cherish. They actually had no portrait of him, so the designer and illustrator worked closely with the Canadian historical illustrator and storyboard artist, 
to ensure that they made the stamp in period clothing and a period sailing ship to reflect his time. Oh. It's a cool looking stamp. That mm-hmm. That is an impressive looking fellow. So he, nobody knows what he looks like, but if he looked like this, that's a cool looking dude. Right. Um, uh, of course, he probably in real life, you know, wore rags and had a hunchback. But <laughs> this guy, this guy looks awesome. He looks like somebody straight out of the movies. He does. Um, interesting thing to add to this is that uh, Canada is celebrating its uh, 150th year this year. And a lot of their stamps are going to have hidden tagging in them that I, actually say Canada 150 if you put them under a UV light. And this is going to be one of the such stamps. Uh, the first one they did was the first stamp of this year for the Chinese New Year. Uh-huh. The year of the rooster in the margins, if you put it under uh, tag light, you'll see Canada 150 in it. You know, this is a cool-looking stamp. I wish the United States Post Office would put out stamps looking like this. Well, it'll bring us to the next one, which is uh, a nice stamp. Um, it's the U.S. stamp for Black History Month. Um, it's going to be the Dorothy Height Forever stamp, and that was uh, issued also on February 1st, and that took place. They, the ceremony took place at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and it is uh, a little bit of background on that stamp. It's the 40th in the Black Heritage Series, and it honors Dorothy Height, uh, who passed away in 2010. She was a tireless activist who dedicated her life to fighting for racial and gender equality. And although she rarely gained recognition, granted her male contemporaries, she became one of the most influential civil rights leaders of the 20th century. The stamp features, the stamp features artist Thomas Blackshear II's gouache and acrylics on board portrait of height. And by the way, he also did a portrait in acrylics on board of the first tube sock. Seriously, get out of here. (laughs) I know. Um, The painting is based on a photograph that was shot in 2009 by Latif Mangum, and art director Derry Noyes actually designed the stamp. And it's a very nice stamp for uh, Black History Month that shows her in a purple uh, top and It's It's an old lady in a purple, frumpy old dress. Canada has a swashbuckler standing out there with a big, huge hat. Well, she wasn't a swashbuckler. Yeah. Well, she should have been a swashbuckler. At least they could have taken a picture of her like when she was, let's say, less than 50. (laughs) Why? Well, is she famous for being an old lady wearing a purple dress? She's famous for civil rights. Yeah. But this stamp says nothing about civil rights. I mean, absolutely nothing about civil rights. It just The Canadian part. stamp, you look at it and you go, yes, I know everything about this guy. I see the ship. I see him coming ashore. I see he's black. I see how he's dressed. This is an old lady wearing a purple dress. It says nothing about anything. I'm going to disagree with you on that point uh-huh. because the, the picture of the Canadian stamp, they didn't have a portrait of him. And it doesn't scream interpreter to me. Uh, no. Hers doesn't, and that's what he was. No. So, I mean, the saying Canadian... she doesn't look like a civil rights leader, but he looks like a swashbuckler. Well, he wasn't a swashbuckler. Well, but he obviously is a very, very early guy getting off a very old boat in Canada. And he's black. And you look at it and you go, 
I don't know the story about him, but he's pretty cool looking. I want to find out something. The other one is an old lady wearing a purple dress. And you go, I know old ladies who wear purple dresses. Okay, well, how about this? How about um, Matthew DaCosta? Almost nobody's ever heard of him. Well, nobody's heard of of either one. Oh, yes, they have. Eh, They have heard of Dorothy Hyde. Well, now everybody's going to know Matthew DaCosta because he is a cool-looking dude. And everybody's going to know Dorothy Hyde because she was an old lady wearing a purple dress. What do you have against old people? Nothing, but because you're like about to be one of them. But the stamp (laughs) about to be, yeah. (laughs) But the stamp doesn't say anything. It doesn't express any story about who this person is. I mean, if she's a civil rights leader, why not show her and in the background show like some protesters or something like that? Then you'd look at it and go, ah, she is a person, black heritage, it says across the top, protester. She was involved in the movement. But this is just a lady in a purple dress. Maybe it would be like last week, our Google. I only found out about... Well, Bessie Coleman. Bessie Coleman. Yep. From Google, saw her picture, wanted to find out why. Yep. So oh, and somebody sees this and they could be like, hey, who is that? Yeah, but the again, the Bessie Coleman stamp. It was a young lady. It said Black Heritage across the top. She was wearing a pilot's hat. So you go, oh, look at that. There was a young Black pilot somewhere back when. I know who this per. I know a little it, bit about the story. There's no context to the There's picture. no context to it whatsoever. It's just a a lady in a purple dress and a hat. Yeah. It has really not much to do with why is she being honored. Well, obviously she deserves to be honored because she well, is Well, it's being part of the honored. Black Heritage series, but why was why did she deserve to be honored? What but, did she do? But look at the Canadian stamp. Compare well, the you, two. Well, you you stepped out for that part, Scott. Mhm. She was a okay. civil civil rights. No, but the point is when you look at the stamp, you say, well, what did she do? She wore a purple dress. Whereas Clearly. Matthew DaCosta, he was a cool dude. He was old-timey Canada. I, I'm i sorry. It's just the concept between the two. They could have done such a much better job. Picture this stamp on the same format. So you move her to one side or the other. Uh, the, the Canadian stamp is a horizontal format. The uh, U.S. stamp is a vertical Picture the Canadian stamp replacing the guy with her. And then to the left, instead of having ships and boats, you would have maybe protesters or you would have something that she accomplished or something. So you have her and then next to it, something that brings it into context. I just think that the Canadian stamp is so much more developed. It expresses a background, a story, regardless of whether they knew whether he looked like this or not. And, you know, he looks so cool that, you know, this has got to be like a Brad Pitt sort of guy. He probably didn't look like that. Understandable. He was probably some toothless hunchback, like I said, but they made him look good and they gave it a great story. They have it in context. They tell you about him. This stamp is just a lady wearing a purple dress. Stamp bashing 2017 continues. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Well, Tom, be realistic. Who makes better stamps, the United States or Canada? Canada. And how long did it take you to think about that? (laughs) I've I've known that for a while. Yeah. No, but I think Denmark does a pretty good job, too. 
oh, a lot of countries do, but when you're comparing just Canada to United States, Canada just squashes the United States on almost yeah. every issue. Yeah. yeah. But so do this. So does this next stamp we're going to talk about. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, that's it for me. <laughs> I'm glad I brought some banter into the uh, podcast, though. <laughs> no, I like it. We certainly, we certainly have have the ability to express opinion. We're not just stating fact now. Oh that's, yeah, that's true. Stay tuned for more. Now it's time for the stamp show here today. Museum contribution. This week we have a rather unique stamp made out of fish skin. The Danish Faroe Island stamp from 2016, made with a piece of leatherized codfish derma. That's derma. We're getting so scientific. That's skin for all you non-erudite. For the celebration of this particularly revolting philatelic abomination, we are going to discuss the Cod Wars. The Cod Wars were a series of confrontations between the United Kingdom and Iceland regarding fishing rights in the North Atlantic. Each of the disputes ended with Iceland's victory. The final Cod War concluded in 1976 with a highly favorable agreement for Iceland, as the United Kingdom conceded to a 200 nautical mile, 370 kilometer, Icelandic exclusive fishery zone following the threats that Iceland would withdraw from NATO, which would have forfeited NATO's access to most of the... Geek? Not nice. which would have forfeited NATO's access to most of the GIUK gap, which was important in anti-submarine warfare during the Cold War. Yeah, it's the Giuk gap, and that's where uh, in the hunt for Red October, they were hunting for the submarine. The submarine went through there. Anyway, go back to the stamp. Well, in preparation for this podcast, I actually watched that movie last night. Ah. Oh, did you? I did. I love that movie. As a result... British fishing communities lost access to rich areas and were devastated with thousands of jobs lost. Since 1982, a 200 nautical mile, 370 kilometer, exclusive economic zone has been the United Nations standard. The term Cod War was coined by a British journalist in early September 1958. None of the Cod Wars meets any of the common thresholds for a conventional war, and they may more accurately be described as militarized interstate disputes. There is only one confirmed death during the Cod Wars. An Icelandic engineer accidentally killed in the second Cod War while repairing damages on an Icelandic gunboat. On a... On a what? Gunboat. Blah. (laughs) What about all the Cod? (laughs) Okay, I gotta read that over again. An Icelandic engineer accidentally killed in the Second Cod War while repairing damages on an Icelandic gunboat. Yeah, most of the battles were like boats ramming into each other. And they had potato cannons. They would shoot potatoes at each other. Those are cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this was, uh, as a military action goes, eh, not not nearly as deadly as, say, uh, any of the other wars. Although I'm sure they're not as... The potato cannons back then were probably not as cool as the ones we have now. Uh, oh, that's they probably invented them just for this war. Yeah, no. If you look at a lot of the footage, there, there, they were like um, a boat would cut somebody's nets, 
And then the guys on the boat that the nets were cut, they'd yell and scream. And that was basically what a battle looked like. Sounds like an episode of Deadliest Catch. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so there were, there's a bunch of other COD wars. And the reason why COD is um, important is back in like the times of the 13 colonies, COD was a major, major food source. I mean, without COD, a lot of countries would have starved. So one, that's why Newfoundland was so um, important and also why they issued so many stamps with COD on them. Um, the paper stamps, not without any codfish, uh, most of them are going to be from Newfoundland. Uh, a couple of them are from the French provinces in Canada. Then you have Greenland and, of course, Iceland. Iceland has uh, several issues with cod stamps. And as a matter of fact, they actually issued a stamp for the 50th anniversary of the cod wars. So there's a lot of cod on stamps. But one of the uh, unintended consequences, and uh, for those who are up on the news, the conflicts over the man-made islands in the South China Sea right now are the unintended consequences of this war. The 200-mile economic zone got China thinking about how to control the South China Sea. Without the Cod Wars, there would be no South China Sea stuff going on because what originally happened was, here, here are the list of the Cod Wars. There were, there, everybody has a three-mile limit. They pushed it to a four-mile limit. They said, British, you cannot fish in our hatcheries within four miles. Well, they did, and back and forth. Then they increased it to 25 miles. Then they increased it to 50 miles. Then they increased it to 200 miles. Then the UN said 200 miles is a fair thing. So all of a sudden, you have China now, and they're sitting there, and they're not in a bubble. They, they say, hey, we want to control the South China Sea. We wanted to do it since the 1940s. We can build an island now and have this 50-mile or 200 mile radius around it. Now we have a way of enforcing the South China Sea and everything you're seeing now in the South China Sea is because of the Cod War. Well, that because China wants to be greedy. Well, they've they have claimed the South China Sea since the 1880s. They've said that's why it's called the South China Sea. And of course, you know, Philippines and Thailand and Vietnam go, yeah, no, that's just the name. Yeah. So you want to know what the Giuk stands for in Giuk Gap? Mm. Sure. Greenland, Iceland, United Kingdom. Oh, mm. interesting. Makes sense because any other configuration would be unpronounceable. We get emails, so summon the answer squad. From many people on Facebook, who are the people in the introduction? We found them off of uh, YouTubes, and uh, actually we'll be adding one from the Ellery Queen. YouTubes? The, the YouTubes. YouTubes, yep. There's more than I one? Thought, I don't <laughs> thought there was one. Yep, yep. The Facebook and the YouTubes. Uh, so we'll, I'll find uh, some new well, ones from At least it's not the Facebooks. <laughs> the the Facebooks. Facebooks. Anyway, the first one is uh, Audrey Hepburn from the movie Charade. The second one is Peter Griffin from Family Guy. Then you have Groucho Marx from Duck Soup. Benny Hill from The Collector. Lenny and Carl from The Simpsons. 
The song is from a band called I'm From Barcelona, and the song is called uh, Collection of Stamps. It's on the album Let Me Introduce My Friends. The last little kid is my son, Sean, and the music is from Bruno Mars. Song about stamps from an album? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't get that. Yeah, from the album. Let me introduce my friends. Yeah. Several posters have asked about the vintage rose stamp fakes on Amazon. Well, I I think we had discussed that the vintage rose stamp had been counterfeited and that these counterfeits were showing up. Uh, particularly on eBay and Amazon sites, being sold uh, below face value. And that is true. They are still out there. They are still being sold. Uh, Various sellers still have them and are selling them as genuine stamps, so be careful. Uh, The quick and easy way to identify the fakes is the lack of tagging. So if you have a shortwave ultraviolet light for tagging, then just check the check to see if it has no tagging. If it glows up uh, blue white, that is an absence of tagging. If it if, if it blows if it glows green, then the tagging is present. And uh, that's the quick check. Uh, another way is to examine the die cutting on the front of the stamps. The die cutting is uh, nothing like the genuine stamps. Each stamp is individually die cut. The corners don't meet properly. Uh, the stamp is printed by lithography instead of engraving. The black is printed by lithography. Even though the ink uh, is raised on the on the paper, it is a it is a new process that the counterfeits are using. The counterfeiters are using to mimic engraved stamps. But the overall stamp doesn't have a sharp, clean look to it. It, it has a, a fuzzy. It's kind of fuzzy in the details in the black. So that's not uh, as easy to tell unless you're familiar with printing techniques. But the die cuts and the uh, tagging are the two easiest ways to identify these as fakes. I still think they're well worth at least 15 or $20 a pain. Don't you have a sheet of these cash? I do indeed. I went out and bought five of them mm-hmm. just cause yeah, I, w- I bought them on Amazon and I was, uh, kind of hoping, you know, I, they, di- they didn't show a good enough picture so I could identify them. So I was just hoping that I would get the fake ones and sure enough I did. It's not uncommon for postage to be sold less than face value as a, as a discount. But when you're dealing with forever stamps, it's less likely in the disc. And if there is a discount, it's much, much smaller. So when you start to see discounts in the range of 20, 30, 40, 50% off of the face value, that's when you should start to suspect that there's possibility of something else going on here or that somebody stole it and they're trying to get rid of it that way. So I'll be, just be very suspicious when, unless that's exactly what you want is to buy a fake, then, uh, then of course that's a go signal that uh, there's a good chance you might get one. But you do have to watch out. It might be stolen, too. Uh-huh. Okay, now going back to the magnification podcast, BMA says, get out your checkbook. The signature line is in microprint. It says authorized signature over and over in very small print that makes it look like a line, but it's not. This is on your check. Yes, on personal checks. Now, 
I looked, because I'm a bookkeeper, I looked at the checks we have at the office. It just says authorized signature under the line. It doesn't have it, but it seems to be on personal checks. Yeah, I looked at mine, and mine definitely says it. On your personal checks? On my personal checks. Mm -hmm. Welcome to non sequiturs here today. Yes. Wow. <laughs> we were watching this, and, and I was like, no way. I went and grabbed my, my, uh, my checkbook, and... You would think that with stamp collectors, we'd be able to find a magnifying glass in the house. And sure enough, I'm like, no way. It's the little things that we like. Okay, now we have... The next one is, uh, because you love Mustangs, I added this one in. Uh -huh. So you have Mustangs, and we talked about the P51s and everything else. Is that correct? McKillops, yeah. Okay. Okay, and we got one from Mac McKillops. Oh, and this is so nice. A Mustang is an officer who was promoted up from the ranks of Navy enlisted personnel with no interruption of his, her active duty status. It is also understood that the Mustang officer is a career sailor and normally wears one or more good conduct medals. Mustang is used in a complimentary sense and garners respect. Indeed, the LDO CWO can rightfully lay claim to this traditional Mustang creed upon receiving a commission. I did it the hard way. I earned it. And God, we trust Navy Mustang. Thank you, Mac. That's interesting. Well, of course, Mustang is complimentary. Well, yeah. Did they have that when you were in the Navy? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so you knew what Mustangs were way, oh, yeah. way before we did. Oh, yeah. You should have mm -hmm. told her. You never asked. <laughs> well, <laughs> gosh. I'm only like the you know, Mustang fanatic. You never asked. <sighs> <laughs> And now for Cash's Corrections. I have no corrections, but I do have two things. Let, let's call them observations. One on the YouTubes. There is a TED Talk. There's only one. There is one. Well, the, there's on one YouTube. YouTube and, there's on, one YouTube and many TED Talks. Okay. On the YouTube, there is a TED Talk, and I love this TED Talk. I'm just throwing it this out here. It has nothing to do with stamp collecting. It's about... Speaking of non sequiturs. It, but, but it's great. It's just fantastic. It's called More Adventures in Replying to Spam, and it's by James Vichek, and I can't do it but if you put in a search uh, more adventures in replying to spam it is hilarious you will love it the second one is also on the YouTube's dragon stamps or dragons on stamps stamp collecting and I want to give this one to Don because it has a very nice slideshow of uh, dragons on stamps and so other people can look at it and uh, also do a search for whatever topic you're looking for because people do put this stuff up and that's it for me. I actually have a correction. Do you? Yes, came through on uh, Facebook. Uh -huh. um, Tony posted on our Facebook site that uh, Scott had mentioned Pat's paragraphs on our literature show and described the classic book as being authored by Pat Hurst. And he says, I believe, in fact, it was written by Elliot Perry. 
Oh. Yes, that's correct. Ooh. Pat Paragraphs was written by Elliot Perry. <laughs> oh, wow. So. Scott got corrected. Thank you, Tony. It's only taking you two years to get me. <laughs> It was a, I think that's a pretty I, good run. That is a good, yeah, absolutely. It is a good run. I mean, you don't ha- you don't have to be corrected so often that you have your own correction segment, Cash. <laughs> our expert topic is fancy cancels. So, Scott, as our expert in residence, how fancy does a cancel have to be to be considered fancy? How do they make fancy cancels and how much are fancy cancels worth? Well, fancy is in the eye of the beholder. You can have everything from just a... Generally, fancy cancels are considered to be images that you see in the cancel. It might be uh, a clover leaf or a star or something out of the ordinary, not a blob. Not a quartered cork cancel. Wonder if the blob looks like an elephant riding a surfboard. Well, if it looks like an elephant riding a surfboard, then it's the elephant surf rider fancy cancel. <laughs> like my dragon, I have my dragon postcard that was canceled, and it has a the postmark is a dragon. Yes, that's a fancy cancel. That's a fancy cancel. Now, generally, when we talk about fancy cancels, most people are concerned with collecting the ones that, uh, the at least as far as U.S. goes, the ones that were. Um, from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The late 19th century, fancy cancels were actually generally created mostly by the local postmaster. Some of them carved their own, either in wood or cork, to create images, and then they used them as canceling devices. And why did they do that? Well, they did that because the government did not provide them with canceling devices. The The post offices were too small. They created two little revenue so that the government uh, decided that they weren't worth providing steel canceling devices. So the postmasters were left to create their own canceling devices for their post office. Now, in the 20th century, you talk about fancy cancels, and those are generally on registry letters. They were used on the front of the letter because it was not allowed by postal regulation to put the the circular date stamp on the front of the letter. So they had to have something to cancel the stamps with on the front. So they, a lot of sometimes they would use fancy cancels for that purpose. So there's a a difference in the the 20th century and the 19th century. Now, some people collect, I mean, fancy cancels can be any, can be as simple as letters and numbers, or they can be pictorial in design, uh, but they have to be out of the ordinary. Uh, non-mainstream, basically. And uh, it could be anything from just a leaf, stars, shields, patriotic, all the way up to animals, bees, mule, a kicking mule, all sorts of different things. Uh, so it has to, the, the fanciness has to be in the eye of the beholder. And obviously the more fancy it is, the more desirable it is, the more money it's going to bring. Because the more people behold it is fancy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like a popular person at a at your high school prom. Like me. Why are they popular? 
Because no, everybody wants cash. It's a good question. Because I'm a stamp collector. To, everybody wants to hang out with them, so therefore they're popular. Everybody loved the stamp so, collector back in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> Get over yourself, Cash. <laughs> <laughs> the 70s did. <laughs> so, how much are they worth? That is a really good question. And it really is uh, a very subjective area. The I don't recall any recent books on valuing for fancy cancels but uh, again the fancier the cancel the more elaborate the design the more uncommon the design the more you're going to have to pay to acquire it Uh, one of the great postmasters that created some of these fancy cancels was in Waterbury Connecticut and there are an entire there are entire books written about the Waterbury cancellations, the fancy cancels. Entire books ha- with these fancy designs, and you get uh, those uh, are probably some of the cream of the crop. Those are going to be the two hundred, three hundred, five hundred dollar covers. Well, they had one with a fireman on it. How much did that one sell in the H.R. Harmer auction? I well, you should ask me to look it up before we started. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it was somewhere in the twelve thousand dollar range. But yes, they can go fairly high. Um, just the com- the more common ones from Waterbury are in the few hundred dollar range. <laughs> Some of the rarer ones, yes, are in the a thousand multi-thousand dollar range so they can be very expensive or they can be relatively inexpensive if you want to collect numeral cancels or uh, Boston did a series of of letters negative letters positive letters Um, those are considered fancy cancels they're out of the ordinary and uh, they bring a slight premium if you have a one dollar stamp you might be paying three to five dollars for the for the fancy cancel they, they don't have to be expensive but they can be so it, well me and tom were looking on the facebook and uh, <sighs> there was one it was a court cancel uh-huh and he described it as fancy cancel and we both looked at that and go that's not fancy that's just an old court cancel yes and and that is common when you see stuff uh, for sale, so uh, like I said, it it can be in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes I have trouble seeing uh, the subjects of these fancy cancels. I can see colors great, but seeing these images that are uh, diff- because of the way they were struck, either they weren't struck evenly, they weren't mm-hmm. completely inked, uh, they were very crudely cut. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me to determine it until somebody says, "Hey, look at that pumpkin." I turn it over and says, oh, yeah, I guess it kind of does look like a <laughs> pumpkin or a jack-o'-lantern. Uh, well, that's like the the but, running chicken yeah. from Waterbury, Connecticut, is actually a running turkey. But they didn't realize it at the time. They didn't realize this was issued right before Thanksgiving. So they just looked at it and said, oh, this is a chicken. And they're going, no, that's a turkey. And, and so it, it really does have to be, you know, sometimes it has to be pointed out before you go, Oh, yeah, I see it now. (laughs) So some of them are are difficult, and uh, those are the ones that are going to be uh, less desirable because they are uh, more difficult to discern. 
Yeah, I, I think that it's really cool about how they made them. Basically, what you're dealing with is board postmasters. And mm. they just sat there and, you know, corks came out of bottles. Oh, absolutely. And so everybody used those. And, you know, you'd have some dude out there whittling and he'd say, hey, I'm going to put a face on this. Well, well, you know, if you took your corks out of your wine bottles and you and you uh, took one and you decided you were going to use that as a canceling device and you actually got an ink pad and then sat there and pretended you were stamping or canceling letters, how long do you think that cork cancel is going to last? It's yeah. it's pretty soft. It's going to fall apart after a very in a very quick amount of time. So a lot of these cancels are quite rare, especially the more elaborate ones, because the designs would just break off, and then you wouldn't have the design, so they'd throw them away. Some have as as short a use as less than a day. Yep. Well, are there some that are like more coveted? Like, say, there's somebody who's very artistic, you know, making their cork cancels. Yeah, the Waterbury. Yeah, are, are like water, at that level. Yeah, Waterbury's the cream of the crop, mm-hmm. um, but there are there are some others. They're out there. Uh, there were some commercial fancy cancel makers that did make fancy cancels, uh, and they would put out uh, an order sheet and they would send them to the postmasters. Hey, you need a, a canceling device? Order one from us. Here are our standard. Mm-hmm. And so that's sometimes you get uh, a fancy design that was actually struck by a few different towns because the postmaster actually ordered one from this company and they got whatever the company made and it was kind of a sort of standard thing and so it might be a little more durable than a handmade well one the rules for canceling letters before 18 before the civil war before 1863 um you had to put the town and the date not on the stamp right and then you had to cancel the stamp so imagine you're in a very small post office in potucket Rhode Island. You get a letter in and you get a pen and you write Pawtucket, Ireland, May 12th. And then you ink, you make a scratch mark inside of the uh, stamp. An X. An X. You make an X on the stamp. That's for the very poorest post offices that don't get any supplies. Absolutely. The first thing they did was they got a round date stamp. So that they didn't have to write Poe, Tuck It. Right. And then then that would have interchangeable slugs for the dates. Right. So then you could cancel that. So the first thing they do is they'd get the uh, CDS, the circular date stamp. So then you would get that and you'd still mark through the pen or the stamp any way you wanted. And so they, it was described at the Boston post office as the person who canceled the letters they describe the job as literally mind-numbing. Ten hours a day of smacking envelopes. That's it. Uh, then they came out with the duplex. And that was, it had the canceller. And then well, it had... No, you had separate uh, um, obliterators and CDSs. Yeah. Oh, and and they, you, would, you would have, you'd do one and then you'd do the other. Yeah. And so the the clerk would likely line up a bunch and he'd do the circular date stamp and then he'd switch to the killer and he would hit the stamps. And then he'd get another stack of and he'd do it all again. So you can imagine, you know, the skill level here is really low and uh 
mind-boggling dullness of it is very high. So I could see whoever was canceling those sitting there going, I'm going to make this canceler, you know, into the a pumpkin or a fireman or something like that. Just to pass the time. Yeah, on his lunch break or, you know, when he goes home at night because he has nothing else to do. Yeah. Well, you got to have something else to do. I mean, <laughs> any, Lord. anything is better than sitting there whacking envelopes all day. <laughs> so anyway, that's how uh, these fancy cancels sort of originated. Yeah, and then they came along. Then they came along and designed a duplex where the killer and the CDS were actually attached in the same device. So they actually only had to whack the envelope one time, and they just had to aim it so that the killer was on the stamp. And then that meant goodbye, fancy cancels. Mm-hmm. Mm, not necessarily. Well, over time, I mean, over yeah, time, once yes. everyone time. had them. I mean, you can consider a flag cancel a fancy cancel. Oh yeah, machine cancels have fancy cancels all over the place. Yeah, mm-hmm. like my dragons. Like your dragon. Uh, so how about fakes? How about fakes? How do you detect? Well, detection of fakes is very difficult. You really have to study the originals. But right now, there's a lot of really good fakes that are coming out of China, and uh, the ones that are completely fake are a little bit easier to tell than the ones that are actual genuine cancels that have been colored over. And what they do is they basically they just darken the cancel with modern ink. And so the differences in the ink on the cover uh, can give away a fancy cancel. Uh, there are it's difficult to describe. Just verbally? Well, I think one the number one that I've seen is that when people are faking fancy cancels, they're not faking it with ink from the 1850s. They're well, yeah, that's what I'm saying is, is the easy way to tell is the differences in the ink. You'll, yeah. you'll find ink of one type of the proper type on one area of the cover, and then yeah. obviously the fancy part of it will have a different type of ink. And it doesn't necessarily have to be modern ink. It's just different Yeah. in that maybe the cancel originated in the 1880s or 1890s and the ink that they used for faking was something that was probably made in the 1850s or something like that. Well, what I've so, seen is a lot of the new ink bleeds through the paper. Well, that's And that's a big red flag when you turn the stamp over and you see ink on the other side of the stamp. Yeah, but you have to realize that there are some inks, some older inks that did bleed. So oh, not 100%. It's you just a have, red flag. You yeah. just have to know what you're looking at. Yep. That has a lot to do with the uh, oil content that was in the original inks. Yep. They didn't yep. tend to bleed as much, and a lot of the fake stuff is more water-based. Well, that's another reason why they did the fancy cancels, why they car- carved them is if you just took a cork and you smacked the envelope, you're using a lot of ink on that cork. When they segment it and add more white space, they don't use as much ink. So the the postmasters were sitting there saying, I want to minimize the amount of ink I use because I got to pay for this out of my pocket. And that's why you get some of these cork cancels, which are segmented and carved up. As an aside to the whole thing, since you brought up the uh, the fireman cover from the Harmer sale, mm-hmm. hammer price was eighty five thousand dollars. 
Oh, boy, was I off. Wow. The estimate was 15. Oh, okay. Oh, my goodness. 85,000. That was the hammer price, so. Yeah. I yeah. figured it was higher than that was actual. We had another 15% on top of that. Yeah, there, we, we actually did a research article on that because I think it was, uh, what was the st- city? Waterbury. Water, yeah, it was in Waterbury, but supposedly they were uh, celebrating a fireman's parade that was a long way away. And everybody called it, I think, the Brig- Brighampton Fireman's or something like that. And we just looked at it and said, there's no way. There's no way to prove what was going on, but why would a person carve a canceling device for a parade that was happening 150 miles away? Well, it says, um, looking at the auction description, it says the cancel was only used between April 25th and May 8th of 1866. Yep. Mm. And, yeah. And, and this this, exi- this particular example um, was cons- is considered to be one of the best examples of that cancel. Out of how many? I think there's less than like 15 of them that exist. Uh, doesn't say. Okay. Anyway, really rare and really valuable. Right. But if anyone ever wants to see it, uh, H.R. Harmer's website, and it was uh, lot 323 of um, the Arivian U.S. and Confederate sale. Yep. So New York 2016 rarity sale. Yep. Shout out to H.R. Harmer. No. Um, I was going to ask one more question um, that I personally don't know if it's considered. Are the New York foreign mail cancels considered fancy cancels? Uh, in a sense, yes, they are. Uh, New York, New York Post Office had a branch had had different sections. They had domestic and foreign sections. And as New York was one of the primary ports of departure from the United from the Eastern United States, the major. Uh, along with Boston and Philadelphia. Yeah, but the customs house was in New York. Right, for departure to points foreign and points, uh, other points uh, domestically by ship. So all your mail going to Europe, South America, all left out, a, a lot of it left out of that port. And so they created special cancels so that it was easily identifiable uh, at a glance for a postal clerk to say, oh, this is foreign mail, and this without having to read the address. Uh, I don't know if you've tried to read uh, <laughs> the writing on covers. I've tried to read era. plenty of them. And, uh, yeah, use two it's not S's. Easy. Some, some people's <laughs> cursive is better than others. It's not easy mm-hmm. sometimes. And so... Uh, Cursive they, is a code. It's a secret code. When they When they went out through that office, they were struck by canceling devices from the foreign mail department to show that they had been processed for departure. And this was an easy way to look at it and say, that's going overseas. This is, or this is not going. And what did they look like? A lot of times they're uh, fairly large and have geometric designs mostly. Although there are others. Very fancy geometric. Very fancy ones. Yes. And there uh, are separate books written uh, the yeah, most yeah, recent the NYFM books have their own books. Yeah, they, yes. they actually number the cancels. They've they've done so much research. Yes, um, the most recent was by uh, William Weiss, and his book is pretty much used uh, as a standard reference for that cancel collecting area. 
following for information used in this podcast wikipedia facebook and youtube the things you should know podcast backstory with the american history guys also we invite you to check out stampfinder.com the bloomberg of philately with great information on the stamps of the world and their values thank you for joining us for episode 111 this has been cash scott tom and i'm your host dawn Continue the conversation at Stamp Show Here Today on Facebook. You can ask us questions, see pictures of the stamps, make comments, and add to the conversation on Facebook. You can also ask the experts your stamp questions at bluepaper at gradingmatters.com. You can listen to all of our past podcasts at stampshowheretoday.com, podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And as always, keep collecting. This episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurse, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today. Hi, this is Bob Prager with Gary Poser Incorporated, and we're in Long Island, New York, and New Jersey, and our philosophy at Gary Poser Incorporated is this. We would rather pay very fair prices on 9 out of 10 collections that we look at versus trying to just offer very low prices on 1 out of 2 and making a big score. That's never our philosophy. So if you want to be treated fairly, please give us a call anytime at 800-323-4279. And again, my name is Bob Prager.